Welcome to the Kings and Queens podcast with your host, Johnny Langton. Today we have a very special guest, the best-selling historical fiction writer Ben Kane. Initially well-known for his excellent trilogies set in ancient Rome, including the Forgotten Legion and the Spartacus series. More recently, he has ventured into medieval England with his Lionheart series, focusing on the reign of Richard I of England. His most recent book is set in the Napoleonic era, in this enviable task, I am joined by Ed Castell, a fellow history and politics teacher, colleague, and the host of my other podcast, Politips, Politics for A-Level and Beyond. If you like politics, check that out. The link is in the description. We spoke to Ben about his Lionheart series, his new book, Napoleon's Spy, as well as the challenges faced and rewards gained from writing historical fiction. Without further ado, here is Ben Kane. Uh, so, Ben, what was the inspiration behind the Lionheart series? Because that is a series of books we've both really enjoyed, bringing to life the stories of uh, Richard the Lionheart. So what made you want to write about him after so many books on ancient Rome? I wanted to change. <laughs> it's as simple as that. <laughs> I, I've, I'd never originally set out to be an author of just Roman stories. I, I've, I have an interest in all periods of history ever since I was a little boy, and... I started with Roman, though. Uh, there's, a, there's a story in there, but uh, maybe we'll have time or not. But I started with Roman, and, and they did really well. And publishers are very conservative. And so my first publisher, Random House, they they were basically just wanted me to keep writing Roman stuff. There was talk once of doing a hundred year hundred years war trilogy, which didn't happen because they were they sort of they got cold feet. And then I changed publishers and my new publisher, which is Orion, part of the Hachette group, one of the sort of prerequisites of me joining them was that I would do a non-Roman book. And that came about as a result of a discussion with the CEO who who asked me, did I know why Bernard Cornwell had taken a break from sharp novels way, way back? And and I said, (laughs) no, I have no idea. And this lady... um, Katie Espiner, she'd actually been his editor at the time, and she said he was getting bored with writing Sharp, so we got him to do something else. Are you getting bored with Rome? And I said, well, not bored, but I could see myself getting there. And and so we talked about various time periods, and and Richard the Lionheart kind of screamed out um, to me. You know, you've got to to be very very careful in this world. You've got to look for what other people are writing, and you've got to be Mm -hmm. cognizant of that because the market is a a pretty crowded place. But he was certainly Mm -hmm. somebody that in the style of book that I write, nobody had tackled for quite a while. So, so it seemed like a, a sort of very opportune moment to seize, to seize, seize that chance. Because Richard is this 12th century king, how did you deal with the challenge of, of his betrayal? So how did you make the, the character who is a clear protagonist sympathetic to, to a modern audience? <laughs> Therein lies the rub of being an accurate uh, novelist of of stuff that took past in the uh, took place in the past if we wrote i think this applies to most historical periods if we wrote characters as they truly were a lot of modern readers might be quite turned off by them hmm. so hmm. for example uh, a roman most roman males if they were citizens would have been racist homophobic misogynistic and loved their puppy but we thought nothing of potentially beating a slave unconscious or to death 
or laughing while a criminal is torn apart by wild animals in the arenas. So, but you can't have a character that's too modern either because that's not real. Um, and in the current climate, it's actually starting to become a bit of a thing where if you're very accurate, certain readers are as accurate as you can be while still be making the character sympathetic, i.e. they've got slaves, but they don't treat them brutally. Or in the case of Richard, you know, he massacred the prisoners at Acre uh, after the siege, but that was a practical thing to do because he couldn't didn't have the food uh, or the men to leave behind for them. Uh, and although um, the Muslims are very shocked because they didn't used to do that, they used to sell prisoners into slavery. But that wasn't something that Christian kings did. So, you know, what he did was normal for for um, for, for, for someone of his time. And so it's it's just a case of trying to make it as accurate as possible. And um, as I say, there's a, there's a bit of a thing coming in now where, where people are getting slated for being accurate because people take objection, uh, take exception, mm -hmm. I should say, to, to the way things are portrayed. I mean, I know of a British Jewish novelist who wrote a book about 19th century London recently. And I've seen his, his, his social media. So this is genuine. I've seen the guy actually talking about it. And he was portraying anti-Semitism in London in the 19th century, which is well documented. And he was being accused of being anti-Semitic. And he's Jewish. Hmm. It's like, no, hmm. he's just telling it like it was. And it doesn't mean he agrees with it. So it's a bit of a tricky path. But uh, fortunately... I haven't had much of that, but I, I reckon it's only a matter of time, especially if I move mm -hmm. novels mm -hmm. further towards close to the present day. People are just looking yeah. for excuses to get upset about everything, even if it's set in the past. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah. Some people. The the Acre mask is something that I was I'm glad you brought up. Um I felt it was it was done really well. And the character Rufus, who of course is nothing but loyal to Richard throughout the the trilogy had that moment of reflection and I felt that was his real connection with the reader. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you. And I, I did think long and hard about how to, how to do it. Um, because I couldn't have Richard having second thoughts because I don't think he, mm. he probably did, mm. you know, mm. it's horrible, but that's the way people operate. I mean, it, other things have, have happened in much more recent wars. You know, you take brutal decisions. You, you don't have, you don't have the sort of benefit of sitting there five years later and going oh well was that a good idea so I, I yeah i try especially the last kind of six eight books i i do really try and show characters moral quandaries uh i did i wasn't as concerned with it earlier on in my career but characters are my hopefully my characters are getting a lot deeper as i as i learn my craft and and so yeah it's one of those things that um if you've got a task to do you've got to do it even if it's unpleasant so I thought it was really interesting how you still brought the sort of medieval perspective as much as possible in the book. So, for example, Richard's keenness to go on crusade and like the religious fervor that people would have felt at the time. Because I think sometimes as history teachers, when we do that with fairly young students, look at Richard and Saladin and, and that. And it's it's difficult not to take sort of a historical judgment on these figures, you know, thinking, wow, he wasn't in England much. He was trying to do religious wars the whole time and going, but actually thinking from a medieval perspective, this is what people really valued, isn't it? Like that religious oh, yeah. fervor going, going so, on crusade yeah, and, and well, you know, winning glory. Yes. A lot of, I mean, I know a lot of people in Britain are, are religious, but it is actually a very secular society. Um, 
even compared to some other European countries. And so if you are secular minded, it's it's sort of completely anachronistic to think of someone starting a war because of religion. But, you know, a thousand years ago, nearly everybody believed in God. Atheists were more or less unheard of. And also perceptions were much more primitive than they are now. So everybody nowadays, I hope, realizes in a war, you know, there's generally nuance. Um, you know, there are certain figures in history like Hitler, who's just out and out evil. But generally in wars, there, there's nuance or gray areas. And uh, and then when a thousand years ago, people didn't have that sense of nuance. When when Jerusalem, the, the center of Christendom, where everybody believed that, you know, Jesus died and was crucified and went to heaven. When that fell to people of another religion. Uh, and okay, it was taken back in the first crusade, but then it was lost again, which is what sparked Richard's crusade. That was, you know, a world shattering moment for for most of the people of Western Europe. And so the way you looked like you were doing your job as king was to immediately pledge yourself to crusade, like like so many of them did. The French king did, you know, William um, Richard's father did. Not everybody went, but Frederick Barbarossa did. And um, Richard was particularly keen, though, because he was... He was a war leader. He liked fighting. There's no, there's no denying that. He was good at war, and he really enjoyed it. Uh, he wasn't. He was much more than that. Um, obviously, well, hopefully, people will know. He, you know, he was fluent in several languages. He he wrote music and poetry, and he could play musical instruments. He, he was he was a smart man, and he was a good politician. Certainly, some of the time. Um, so he wasn't just a war leader. But what he did was was all right. He was very eager about it, but he was doing what everybody else wanted to do, at least in name. Um, so the fact that he was good at organizing a campaign and and uh, a huge fleet and an army, you know, was just credit to his personal ability. So it's not just the, um, the, the sympathetic and protagonistic characters that you write. You also write about some truly sinister characters like Fitzaldum and, and John. What do you think it would be like if we if we went for dinner with, with some of these characters and how, how would that night go with the nasty guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh my goodness i've never been asked a question like that uh, i would not <laughs> like to have dinner with john i'll tell you that he he was um you know obviously sometimes histories are written by historians with it with an agenda especially in the past so people tell oh, you know for example a lot of roman emperors that were damned in by the roman histories that we have people have revisited that and just gone look this was clearly someone who was who was sympathetic to the emperor of the time so of course they were going to badmouth nero for example you know nero was massively popular with the general public uh, so John, but John has come down. I think it's fairly well recognized that not only was he treacherous to his own brother, he was also pretty inept. You know, he got sent over to Ireland as a teenager, with Ireland being his, his, you know, his domain given to him by the father. And, and he was rubbish. His, he got beaten and got basically came home in disgrace. And he couldn't even, he couldn't even get into bed with Philippe Capet well either. And, uh, you know, we, he was he was just not good. But when he became king, you know, he 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 wasn't absolutely awful, but he was um, a very sly man, is is what I came away thinking. And and I don't like sly people, so I suspect it would be quite an uncomfortable um, dinner. And Fitzaldelm, who's the for for those of your listeners who don't know, he's the sort of he's the fictional baddie who's the, who's the 
the main enemy of the ma- of the main fictional character Rufus. He's just thoroughly unpresent and arrogant, and um, uh, you know, a murderer to boot. So, um, I, I suspect I would eat my meal mostly silence. <laughs> <laughs> on on that theme, Ben, when you, when we talk about things like eating a meal, one of the things I find slightly awe inspiring, actually, when I'm reading historical fiction like you're doing, is the level of detail you, you naturally have to go into about everyday life, for example. It's not just the big events, you know, what army is fighting which one on what date, but it's also what the characters are wearing, sort of language they use, um, you know, the food they're eating. How, how do you source material for everyday medieval life? Is it, I imagine it's a pretty huge task, a lot of reading involved? Yes, yeah, and very daunting because when I set about when I was coming to write this first one of these books, which is now about three years ago, um, I was coming from a time where I'd spent more than a decade writing about ancient Rome within a fairly narrow time frame, only in about a two hundred year time frame of Rome's history, and I have close to three hundred textbooks on ancient Rome and. I don't know what my level of knowledge is at, but it's it's approaching degree level. I, and I'm not being funny to say that. Uh, uh, so I know a lot about ancient Rome. And then I had to turn that around on a sixpence, as they say, and, and just write a book about the 1100s. Uh, and it was terrifying, absolutely terrifying, uh, especially when, you know, again, your listeners were probably aware of really great fun, um, historical novelists like Sharon K. Penman or from this country, Elizabeth Chadwick. You know, Elizabeth Chadwick's written more than 20 novels set in the 11th and 12th and 13th century. And so um, what I did was I, I just looked looked up as many uh, sort of, but you, I, buy, I buy a baseline couple of textbooks, then I go to the bibliographies of those. Amazon is always your friend because when you buy something, it recommends you similar things. Uh, I look for uh, scholarly articles as well. I ask people. I, I, you know, I didn't actually ask Elizabeth Chadwick, but I ask people. Um, I approach academics and and I buy vast numbers of textbooks. And I don't always get to read them all, but I will read. Uh, you know, I have I have. Um, there's a couple of people I can't remember their surname, but it's it's hilarious on the fronts of their books. Um, it's daily life in a medieval town, daily life in a medieval castle. And their books were used extensively by the Game of Thrones people, as it says on the cover. And I'm looking at it going, well, I don't care about that. But um, it's a husband <laughs> and wife team. And so I have those and I have books on medieval, on eating and clothing. And because, you know, you were mentioning about the battles and so on. All that is easy to find out. But the fabric of a novel, which mm-hmm. is what everyday people do every day, what, when they get up, what do they do? What do they put on? What do they have for breakfast? Do they have breakfast? Well, in fact, medieval times, they only had two meals a day, not three. You know, so it's getting in details like that, which most readers probably won't even notice because you've got to put it in lightly. You can't put it in heavily. I mean, I did a lot in my first few novels, but that's what you do when you're learning. Um, But, you know, it's for me, it's vital that it's accurate because otherwise it screams inaccurate to the reader who does know um and conversation is perhaps the most difficult of those so it's because how do you write i wasn't going to write my novel in french or occitan or or medieval english so you know you can argue that all conversation is artificial in whatever time period unless you write it in latin for the roman times and then you know three people can read it 
So you're up against you're up against the critical reader all the time. So you, for me, I, I try to make it as accurate as I can, and try to use not to use any modern words. Um, and I, I'm, I'm always on on you know my radar is always on hyper alert that I'll, even though I'm trying not to put in a modern word, sometimes a modern word will get in. Uh, so yeah, I mean I had one recently. What was it? Why did I use the word troops? in 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 the richard novels i think it was because the word troops wasn't used till the 1500s and i'm going oh. okay <laughs> 300 years out like really does that matter but to this person it did matter um so yeah so yeah i was going to ask if you do get um people asking you these questions um about the accuracy and that's really interesting that um, do actually get yeah, no, there are though most people take the I think they take all authors, they trust them that they're in they're mm. in the, the hands of, of of people that have taken their, their research seriously. And every every historical novelist I know takes it really seriously. Um you know, that, that's how I ended up walking Hadrian's Wall in Roman gear was because I wanted to know what it was like um dressed in Roman military kit. But um you also get the negative reviews and the or the negative emails and stuff. And and it is, you know, literally sometimes someone will hate a book because the word troops was in it. And you're like, okay, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> um yeah, you, you can't always get it, you can't get it right all the time. You know, I do my best, but the fact is I, I can't take three years or even two years to write a book. I have to write a book every year because that's what pays my pays my for me to live. And I always look back on books. I mean, the the new one is about Napoleon's invasion of Russia, and I picked it up a few times because um, uh, people were asking me stuff about it, and I couldn't remember. So I was looking in the book, uh, and there are things in it. Or I'm also reading another textbook uh, with images because I'm presenting talks on it, and this, there were there was information I was finding where I was going, oh my god, I wanted to put, I, if I'd known that, I would have put that in the book, and that always happens to me, but the book's mm. been written and it's published, and, and so you can't change it. But, you know, that that's just the nature of novel writing. Uh, when you're doing it, you're doing the one every year. Well, on that note, in terms of um, Napoleon, so you have a new series of books, is it, um, well, how we pronounce it? So the protagonist is half English, half French, isn't he? So is it Matthew Carey or is it uh, Mathieu Carey? I mean, how is he, how do you pronounce his um, name? Well, in England, you'd call him Matthew Carey. So it's a little yeah. bit of an homage, homage, I should say, sorry, uh, to a novelist called Ronald Welch. I don't know if either of you read him when you were younger. He's a children's novelist who, I mean, he was, he was, unbelievably talented he wrote a series of books about the Carey family and they started with Knight Crusader and they went through with one member of the family so there was a family tree at the front of every book and one member of every generation or two sometimes was in a different period of British history so he went all the way through to World War One so this guy wrote a different time wow. period for 20 novels and had to do all the research anyway the family's called Carey, and this, and also Carey is a name where I live in Somerset, and it also happens to be a French surname in 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 Normandy. So I I, I did that, yeah. So his name would be Matthew Carey, probably, but in English he'd be Matthew Carey. Um, yeah, fantastic. And, and so, what's the inspiration be, behind going to the Napoleonic era? Because I guess the the more recent the history, um, in some ways, the more controversial, I suppose. Because unlike maybe, arguably, ancient Rome or even the medieval times, Napoleon can still be a bit of a controversial 
um, figure, can't you? Oh, a massively. hero to some in yeah, France. Yeah. Uh, you know, a bit of a, certainly from an English perspective, uh, the enemy, you know, the, this this is it. of absolutism. It's, oh, yeah. So a, fascin- a fascinating. <clears throat> so, how do, how do you navi- navigate that treacherous path? And, well, it was, uh, it was great fun because, um, as your listeners may have guessed, I'm Irish. So, to me, growing up, Napoleon was a good guy because during Absolutely, there was a rebellion yeah. in Ireland in 1798 and the French sent sent troops it was before Napoleon was in power um oh, no it wasn't he was he, he was in power by then um they he sent troops to to Ireland to help the Irish rebels against the English so i i have no conception of Napoleon uh being a baddie i mean he was an egomaniac and he was crazy to go to russia um but he i it, i don't have the baggage uh, mm. that British, some British people have, which is also, you know, completely understandable. So, um, why did I come to write it? Well, I read a, a textbook called Napoleon's Fatal March on Moscow by Adam Zamoyski. It is a, is a textbook that reads like a thriller. And Zamoyski can speak about seven languages. So he didn't just go to the English language sources or the, the French first-hand accounts that were translated into English. He went and read them all himself in Polish and Italian and because um, Napoleon's army was from about 12 or 15 different countries. And it was this extraordinary tale uh, of human suffering and um, monstrous stupidity. And it was screaming out to write. So my editor thought it sounded great. So that, that's what I ended up doing. I read the book four years ago and that's how long it's taken to, you know, from idea to it coming out because I'm always, I'm always kind of, committed to writing other novels or whatever in that case it was the lionheart trilogy and it was supposed to be a standalone but um and i'm not i'm not following it up immediately but the events of 1813 after the after they got out of russia and how the germans all rose up against napoleon and the russians followed him you know chasing him and he then fought this big rearguard action and obviously that, that led to 1814 and he was taken from power escaped and then waterloo is i think i think i'll need to write a book on that holds the road to waterloo funnily enough um but that might not be for a few years because i'm currently writing a a a viking novel set in ireland so fantastic yeah Uh, all these oh well very envious all these brilliant periods of history and i guess you you can just swoop into the the one that you want yeah. to do where, where you think where you think there's a good story to be told well it's funny i you know when i when i was intending to give up veterinary medicine because that was my career for 16 years and i didn't know what to do and i decided i'd write a novel i was actually sort of more leaning towards vikings because um in when you grow up in ireland the vikings had a huge amount to do with history there mm-hmm. in the medieval period and the romans never got to ireland as everybody knows so um literally it was because i was standing outside of waterstones and bernard cornwell's first utrecht novel was filling half the front window and i looked at it and my heart sank and i thought i can't write a viking novel because bernard cornwell's doing it and that was (laughs) you know i didn't know how the publishing industry worked and actually writing a viking novel would have been really good because publishers like publishing when someone like Bernard Cornwell does it, they, they, other publishers, rival publishers, love to publish something similar to jump on the bandwagon. Just think of all the Vi- uh, vampire novels with, when the Twilight Saga was out and when Fifty Shades of Grey was out, all the other erotic novels that came out. You know, everybody jumps on board, but I didn't know that. So I went, oh, I'll write Romans. But now I've come back full circle and being Irish, I want to write about them in Ireland. And and thankfully, mm-hmm. not many. I don't, in fact, I only know of one other novel set in Ireland. Everybody writes Vikings set in this country uh, or they write them in Scandinavia or whatever. So 
So it's a kind of a popular area, but but it is relatively poorly covered. And do you find as an Irishman living in England that actually it's a good opportunity to burst some of the, I guess, stereotype and myths that people in England sometimes say either about figures like Napoleon or indeed in Vikings, that actually it's as much an Irish, even in some ways more of an Irish story than just an English story, the the Viking invasions? Uh, I, I hadn't thought about that, actually. I genuinely hadn't thought about that. But I suppose, yeah, maybe some British readers won't because that's most of my readership. It's about 70 percent. Um, perhaps a lot of them won't realise that the the Vikings had a lot to do um, in Ireland. And, you know, something I didn't even realise was the, the massive differences between Norse. I'm going to call them Norsemen because they they were they weren't all Vikings. Only they were only called Vikings when they raided. So when they were living somewhere, they were Norsemen. Um, the Norse history in Ireland is totally different to that here. Um, in other words, here you had Alfred and Wessex and you had Essex and the whole east coast of England up to York, all controlled by the Vikings and the payment of Dane Geld, the, the go away, here's £10,000 of silver, come back next year, please. And the Vikings just go, yeah, great. Uh, and then big battles every few years and obviously leading to Stamford Bridge and so on. Um, but in Ireland... You had 200 years of raids and um, Norsemen settling in Ireland in, in very small settlements like Dublin, Wexford, Waterford, Cork, for example, and not really having any power inland and also marrying and inter intermarrying hugely with the Irish. And so it was completely normal for much of the 900s and 1000s to have um, there were there were provincial kings in Ireland and sub kings, and you would have kings fighting kings, and they would have Norsemen fighting on both sides. So it wasn't Irish against Norse; it was Irish and Norse against Irish and Norse, and sometimes it was Irish and Hiberno Norse against Vikings who were still coming in from Norway or the Isle of Man or wherever. So it's it's really quite different um, and very very interesting. So and full of the usual, you know, backstabbing and betrayals and people paying off rivals and all the stuff you get with it everywhere in the world. Can't, can't wait to read it. <laughs> yeah. Just to go back to the, the process of novel writing, because we've got quite a lot of young listeners and also uh, people who are considering maybe uh, venturing into novel writing themselves. How would you describe the process of, of writing historical fiction? And do you think your process has changed as you've become more experienced? Um, yeah, I would answer yes, definitely to the latter part. How, how does it work? Um, the first thing is to, to, to anyone who's considering it, whether they be young or, or old or whatever age, is that you need to take writing seriously. If you want to publish a novel, to write a novel and finish it and then to get it published, whether it's self-published or published traditionally, you need to take it seriously. You don't go, I want to drive a car, I'm going to get behind the wheel and take off down the road because clearly you'd crash and or kill yourself and or other people. And it's exactly the same with writing. It's a craft and it needs to be learned. And I would suggest one, two, three years of learning is 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 a really good idea before you think of, of publishing, unless you're someone like Sebastian Fox who can write a novel in six weeks. Um, you know, people like that do happen, but they're rare. So taking it seriously and setting aside time for it, ideally daily, and people so often say, oh, I haven't got the time. Well, okay, everybody's got time to sit and scroll on their smartphone for, mm. let's say, let's be, let's be miserly and go 15 minutes a day, knowing we all do it way more than that. If you're serious about writing a novel, you could write for 15 minutes a day. So 
start writing is is a really good thing. Uh, plot out your your storyline, but it doesn't have to be intricate. Just you know, beginning, middle, and end, or maybe a few points in between. Um, writing down the characteristics of your main characters, because if you don't know what they're like yourself, then it won't translate on the page. So you know, whether it's people that you know or someone you like or you don't like. What do they look like? What are some of their mannerisms? And and write them down. Sometimes people, you know, what's really useful on sticky notes and have them on a, on the wall in front of you so you can refer to them. Uh, and then and then just get going. And what's really important is not to edit too much each day. So suppose you're writing for 15 minutes every day. Just read over once what you did the day before and correct a couple of mistakes, but just keep going with your with more progress because otherwise you can get trapped and i know this from bitter experience you can get trapped in a vicious cycle of editing and you never you, you never advance if you don't do that if you do that i should say so when you finish a novel or you finish three chapters you can spend a bit of time editing that because you've got something but progress is very important um because a novel doesn't write itself reading is vital uh, or audiobooks in all kinds of genres, not just the genre you like. So is research, but then you have the rabbit hole of the internet and you can start off looking up something and three hours later you're reading about, you know, how they skinned uh, bears in Alaska in the 19th, 19th century and you're going, well, how did I end up here? Um, <laughs> so you've got to be careful with that. And and I would I would suggest that textbooks are actually better you know non-fiction books are better than the internet a lot of the time because you've got to be wary wikipedia is a good go-to but you can't rely on it because anyone can write a wikipedia page um so it's it's good to to back it up with real research uh and um also getting other people to read it but the trouble with that is if they're, they're your family or your friends they love you so they're not going to be critical enough so it's good to get some pointers maybe, but when you have a finished, let's say you finish a novel, it's really important to find an editor and, and actually pay them some money, an independent editor. There are lots of them out there. I mean, I, I have a really brilliant one I, I've recommended loads of people to, and if anyone ever emails me, I just can't put them in touch, is to pay an editor to edit your book because the, someone whose craft is doing that is worth their weight in gold. I mean, I can't emphasize that enough. When I'd finished my first novel, my agent at the time said, you know, I, I can get you a book deal for this. This is great. But I recommend that you have it edited by a professional editor. So I did. It cost me 1,200 quid. And that was 15 years ago, 18 years ago. And it was the best 1,200 quid or whatever it was I ever spent because she polished it. Like, I just couldn't believe there was so much difference. And it was literally, you know, probably a week's work for me. Um, just changing and, and cutting and polishing and 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 just little things that you do, that you learn yourself. I mean, I wouldn't ever say you get to the stage where you don't need an editor, but certainly when you're in your your baby days as a writer, editors are they're crucial, absolutely crucial. Brilliant. Can I just ask finally a really ridiculous question now? Because I know you. Um, have you mentioned earlier that you've walked the length of Hadrian Wall in, in, in a Roman leadership outfit and clearly from all your novels you really know your stuff when it comes to medieval fighting and ancient um, fighting so who do you think would win a fight between a Roman legionary at their height and, and a medieval knight um, a la Richard and, and Rufus? Just on flat ground with a, with a medieval knight charging a Roman legionary? 
Go on, let, let's say 30 knights versus 30... Le- yeah, 30 knights with their horses and 30 legionaries. Oh, knights. Knights are going to win 100% because they're heavy, heavy cavalry. Um, so a lovely quote that was in one of the books was that um, a Frankish knight, just like an English knight, was uh, would hit a wall... Would Sorry, would break a hole through the walls of Jericho, this biblical city with walls that were like 20 feet thick. Um, and it was an incredible description by a, by a Muslim writer of the time of of seeing one of his friends hit by the lance of uh, a Frankish knight at full charge. So their lance was about 12, 14 feet long and at a horse weighing three or 400 kilos plus a man in armor weighing another 100. And I, won't, I know you've got younger listeners, but but the spear literally went through him and out the other side oh, me. completely yeah. and lifted him off the saddle. So um, unless those legionaries knew what legionaries in Parthia did in uh, Mark Antony's campaign there, which is where they had 12-foot spears when they went in there and when the cataphracts, which were Parthian heavy cavalry with armor, just like knights of the medieval period, but um, a thousand years earlier, when they charged, the legionaries literally did a wall of long spears out in front of their shields and horses will not charge onto that. So it depends. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for my, yeah. Thank you for indulging my ridiculous question. Yeah, no, but no, great it's answer. Funny, it's great funny. answer. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Thank you. First of all, to our Castell for joining me. And most of all, thank you to Ben Kane. His books are available through all major book distributors and through his website. You can also follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Kane Author. You can follow Kings and Queens through Twitter, Kings Queens Pod, Instagram, Kings Queens Podcast, and on Facebook too. You can also email in any questions that you've got to the Kings and Queens Podcast at gmail.com. Ed will be back to talk about Athelstan, the first king of England in the next few weeks. So look out for that. It will be a little taster of what is to come in a future series on the Saxon Kings right after Elizabeth II. In the meantime, George V will be released soon. But until then, I will see you next time.